everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 62 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about rent on your There Will Always Be Women in Rubber Flirting With Me podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. And this is another installment in our reverse pop culturally deprived episodes that we're doing uh, for the month of March to celebrate the anniversary of uh, when we launched Eloquent Gushing so that we could do more podcasts than just pop culturally deprived. And so this week we are joined by Catherine, who has previously been on the show uh, to talk about Spirited Away, but she is also Matthew's co-host on the Across the Arrowverse podcast. So Catherine, I'm so glad that you're joining us again. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's really fun to be recording with the both of you. And uh, and yeah, it's been a great film to watch. It, it's fun to cover a musical because I think we all do quite like a musical. Who doesn't like a musical? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know some people who do not like musicals and it hurts my heart so badly. <laughs> well, they won't be listening to this, so they suck and get, can get lost. <laughs> I used to know people who didn't like musicals. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Oh, did you convert them or are they just not in your life anymore? Ghosted them. <laughs> bit, bit, bit of A, bit of B. Okay. <laughs> so we're watching Rent. Um, Mandy, this was one of your top picks for films we could cover when we were, we were looking for films that we hadn't seen. Um, can you tell us why Rent was so high on your list? Well, Rent, the movie version of Rent is always what I say when people ask me what my favorite movie is. It's always, always Rent at the very top of my list. And I I feel like that's an unusual choice, but Rent, it's so good for starters. (laughs) But I think for me, Rent was kind of the start of my awakening and enlightenment and journey to being the person that I am today. I first saw Rent in 2006, so it had just come out on DVD. I rented it from McDonald's Redbox. Okay. <laughs> and Is that like the old vending machines? Yes, um, absolutely okay. I did. And I, I watched it. There was nobody at home, so my roommates were gone, so I was in the living room by myself watching this movie. I had no idea what it was about. All I knew was that it was a musical. Full stop. Knew nothing else. I had never seen the stage play I just liked musicals, and so I thought this would be a really cool thing for me to watch. And I think somewhere about halfway through, um, I started crying, and I kind of didn't stop until it was done. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as it was finished, I literally pressed play and watched it again um, right away. So I basically sat there for four and a half hours watching Rent, and... This movie blew Mandy Kay's little mind (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it was really my first experience with, I guess, the normalization of homosexuality and the AIDS epidemic and having this found family despite all of these conflicts, I guess. Um, Mm. I saw this movie during the time when I was still very, very heavily influenced by my faith. And so these were things I had never been exposed to other than in church when they were teaching that those things were bad. And so when I saw them in such a positive light, the way they were portrayed in this movie, when you see family and love and happiness, despite all of the bad things that are happening, like my brain just didn't really know what to do with that. And it kind of 
opened my life to a lot of possibilities that I hadn't previously had. And so I kind of directly um, credit Rent with the beginning of the journey that I eventually went through. And and for that, it's always going to hold a special place in my heart. That's good. And, and that's a journey that I think leads to the last few years where you've realized you there's a lot of this media and interesting things that you've not seen. So you're mm-hmm. trying to see them and, and partake in the wider pop culture. Yes, absolutely. Nice. And learning so many things that I missed out on when I was younger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's that's fascinating. I, I can totally see how this is the sort of the sort of film that could do that and and could have such a a resonant emotional connection. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and when I say it, it blew my little mind, it it blew my mind because these were not things that I had ever equated with positivity or happiness mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. love. And so to yep. see it presented in that way kind of rocked my world and showed me that the world was bigger than I thought it was. Yep. So yeah, that's why this is always going to be my favorite yeah. movie. And and I'm going to gush mm. this whole podcast. I'm going to have a really hard time <laughs> um, accepting and acknowledging criticism, even though I'm going to try really hard to step back because I, I understand <laughs> that there are some problematic things going on. Um, but mostly I'm just th- going to gush. I think also, though, there is um, th- there are films that you watch and you're introduced to at different stages in your life mm. and the amounts, uh, w- the amounts that a certain film would resonate with you mm-hmm. um, is different depending on who you are at the time that you watch it. Yes. You know what I mean? So I, I, can, I, I can totally understand exactly what you're saying about this film having resonated with you so strongly when you first saw it in 2005. Partly because I think um, I was watching the film, I was just thinking, my goodness, if Catherine had seen this stage show when it was first on stage, uh, and possibly even if I'd seen the film when the film was first out, I think my my initial reaction about being able to place myself within the film is probably the wrong mm. word because I don't know that I could ever have placed myself within the film but my, my initial emotional reaction to the film would probably have been quite different to to almost 40 Catherine almost mm. not there yet <laughs> almost 40 Catherine's initial instinctive um, emotional reactions to the film which I find quite interesting because I think there's you know there's different films and there's different productions and and stuff that that were my sort of first introduction to different aspects of life and and, and the world that happened uh, uh, you know 10 15 20 years ago whenever that those films have resonated with me so strongly and Mm. still do now Mm -hmm. that I can acknowledge that if I saw them now I probably wouldn't have the first same first reaction to them. Right. Sorry, I'm, I'm labouring a point that I've now disappeared as to I am not entirely sure where I was going with that, so I'll stop talking. <laughs> yeah, I, I have that same feeling about something like Rocky Horror Show that I saw as, as a young teen and was, oh, this is a world that's fundamentally very different but treating things in a, a, an exceptional way mm-hmm. as well as being a great musical. Yeah. Can you guys tell me why you never watched Rent before, especially after belabouring the point when we first started chatting that you guys love musicals. I have no idea. But I I do think there are certain musicals Mm -hmm. that are very, very important to um, the the sort of the music going population in the US Mm -hmm. that are not quite as 
key in in the sort of the musicals that that we're aware of in the UK, which I know seems a bit strange because a lot of the time our our pop cultures are very much overlapping and synonymous. Uh, Synonymous is the wrong word, but anyway, Mm -hmm. very much overlapping. But I think Rent and I think Into the Woods are two Mm -hmm. musicals I place in the same category that almost all of my American friends that like musicals 100% aware of these right from the very start. Whereas here in the UK, they are sort of slightly more periphery musicals, maybe. Mm. Okay. So, but yeah, now I've no idea why I didn't watch it. Having watched it, <laughs> I, I'm watching it going, why did I not see this at the time? This was entirely within <laughs> my my mm. my key sort of things that I like to watch. And normally when that happens, I go, oh, that's because when I, that's when I was living in Japan. This wasn't when I was living in Japan. I was merrily ensconced in London. I suspect <laughs> it was possibly because I had my head buried in a tax um, book <laughs> because I was right in the middle of my professional exams at that point. And quite frankly, I had no life. Um, <laughs> but, okay, that, that's that's fair. <laughs> I th- I think in the same way it's the songs in this are not songs that I see coming up in uh, other references or yeah being referenced in places being done in choirs that that you see people covering. Okay. So and it's usually the songs that draw you into you know something like Chicago. I've also not seen Chicago but I am very aware of it. I'm aware of the film which is I think about this time and the songs because it was popularized outside of just the film and the stage show. I also suspect okay. this probably did not have a huge run in, in England. Okay. Compared to how it did in on Broadway. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. It didn't even occur to me that it would be different in the UK and the US because, I mean, this is the 11th longest running Broadway show in the US. Um, and the, the songs are very popular outside of the context of the show itself. I mean, Seasons of Love is a song that I think everybody has heard, if not able Including to sing me. it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've heard it, but I'm... Hmm. No, I, I had definitely heard it. I didn't know it was from Rent. Okay. Okay, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. But I, I think there is a, I think there's more of a disparity between the UK and the US for musical theatre um, than there is for, for, for movies. And I guess it's because mm. it's, um, you know, if you've got a, a new hit show with one main cast, they can only be in one country at one time, whereas you can send your movie around the world, perhaps. I mean, obviously, right. things do come over, <laughs> you know, everyone, you know, it's I've still got like a five year waiting list to get Hamilton tickets yeah. at the moment. That's that's here now. <laughs> but, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess less overlap. Yeah. Some shows aren't so successful. Book of Mormon was hugely successful here but not as well-liked as it was in the US, I think. Okay. And and even just looking on Wikipedia, yeah, the initial run in the UK was about a year, it, and the revival since has been uh, a production called Rent Remixed, okay. um, set in the, in the present day with some changes, including Denise Van Outen as Maureen. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Which I can see. I, I, yeah. I don't hate Denise Van Outen. Um, but even that only ran for a few months, it looks like. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm. Huh. So basically, we, we we missed out. Yeah. Yeah, you really did. Um, <laughs> so I, I was going to focus my history and production information just on the movie adaptation, since that's what we're talking about. But mm-hmm. I do want to take a minute just to talk about the, the stage production, because I feel like it does a disservice to it not to at least talk about Jonathan Larson a little bit, um, who wrote it, and kind of how his death impacted the premiere of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rent is a rock musical um, that premiered on um, 
Broadway in 1996, but it did premiere off-Broadway in January of 1996. The first preview performance off-Broadway was scheduled for January 26th of 1996. Jonathan Larson died unexpectedly on January 25th. Mm. And um, awful. Yeah, he had an, an aortic aneurysm, and it was completely uh, surprising. Like, nobody expected it. Um, mm. And what they did was they decided to go ahead with the show on uh, that, that premiere the next day, January 26, 1996. But they had decided to do it rather than doing a full performance. They did it as a reading. And so mm-hmm. they didn't wear costumes. They just kind of um, – the stage performance is basically three steel tables in the middle of the stage. And they work around those. And so basically they were all sitting on these tables just reading and singing the songs. And then by the time they got to La Vie Bohème, which is one of the most upbeat, if not the most upbeat song in the show, Mm -hmm. they just kind of couldn't contain themselves anymore. And they burst into full choreography and they did the rest of the show the way it was intended to be done. And when they finished, there was dead silence in the theater and then finally, um, somebody said, thank you, Jonathan Larson. And then everybody burst into applause. And less than a year later, it moved to Broadway and it ran on Broadway from 1996 to 2008, which is fantastic. And that means it was still mm. on its Broadway run when this movie adaptation came out. Um, th- there was an interesting note about that, uh, the, that second production um, where they, they were doing it sat on the stage uh, and people talk about it was Anthony Rapp who actually got up to sing La Vie Bohème. Mm-hmm. And, and the way he talks about it, it sounds like it was just a, a technical thing. You can't sing that song if you're sat and compressed, as it right, were. Right, And um, Because when uh, he then talked about it, he, he talked about how he was impressed with Jesse Martin getting through the funeral, because the angel's funeral, because everyone was actually quite tearing up at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and when you are crying, your throat is restricting. Yeah. But the singing he had to do is very open singing, but he still managed to get through it. And he was impressed with that side of the performance and not thinking about his own, what he'd done in, in leading La Vie Bohème. Right. Really, really interesting to see them, them doing that as something very different, but still understanding the mechanics of what they're doing and how it's impacting and how you have to perform. Right. Clearly very, very professional and, and quality. <laughs> quality actors, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I think absolutely. There, there is something so heartbreaking about the idea that this guy mm-hmm. created this this great thing that went on to do great things and never saw any of it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There, there are some people that you're you're grateful to have experienced the the output they put into the world, but with him, it's very much uh, there were there were other musicals he would have worked on or uh, gone and done something for Disney or other people, and it's it's sad that we've missed out on them. Absolutely. Um, it just, it, it breaks my heart. I didn't know any of that when I watched the movie. Um, I, like I said, I didn't know anything about the stage play. I had no context for anything. And so I went back and kind of been learning all of these things since then. And um, when I learned that, it just absolutely broke my heart. But it gave me such a respect for the cast. Because not mm-hmm. only do, like you said, you, you see the quality of, of their work, but you can also see the love that they had for Jonathan and for his creation. Hmm. Mm. So we are actually here to talk about the movie, though. So um, (laughs) Rent is the 2005 movie adaptation of the hit Broadway musical of the same name and is loosely based on Puccini's opera La Boheme. 
It was directed by Chris Columbus, and six of the original Broadway stars reprised their roles. Anthony Rapp, Adam Paschal, Jesse L. Martin, Adina Menzel, Wilson Germain Heredia, and Tay Diggs. Newcomers Rosario Dawson and Tracy Toms rounded out the cast. The film didn't do well at the box office, bringing in less than its budget of $40 million. Rotten Tomatoes has rated it at 46%, adding, Fans of the stage musical may forgive Rent its flaws, but weak direction, inescapable staginess, and an irritating faux-boho pretension prevent the film from connecting on screen. I didn't put the brief synopsis in there because, Matthew, you usually make me do that when I haven't seen it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit hard because there's no particular plot this is a a year in the life of people living in a down village in new york okay fair enough and there's lots of songs yeah yeah i i'd agree i think it's sort of uh, yeah i'd agree it's a a snapshot of a year Mm. lots of songs lots of interconnecting stories about love with with a with this background of the impending gentrification and of course uh yeah heartbreaking mm. AIDS epidemic going on at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, a snapshot of that community. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Perhaps. Would you agree, Mandy? I, I Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm always going to kind of step back and, and take that framework of it being about found family <laughs> because that's what I mm-hmm. do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's definitely, I mean, it's, it's a year in the life of these struggling artists and the struggles they go through both with their work and in their lives, um, all wrapped up in the gentrification of lower Manhattan and the AIDS epidemic. And there's a lot of stuff in there. Mm. So how did you guys get to watch this one? Netflix. Okay. It is also on Netflix here in the U.S., um, but of course I own this one on DVD. So, (laughs) yeah. Um, and Catherine, you touched on this a little bit, but what were your expectations whenever you sat down to watch this? I, I don't know. So I think w- what I knew about it was I knew that it was an edgy, imagine me doing quotation marks, <laughs> musical. But other than that, I had very few expectations. I really didn't know a- an awful lot other than that. Um, I wasn't ent- I wasn't really aware of, of, of the story or the setting. Um, I was expecting to like it. I thought I would know some of the songs. Um, but other than that, I, I didn't really have any other expectations. I I was fairly aware of this. I've seen references to it and spoofs of it in other places, um, particularly Team America World Police. Um, I knew the, the spoof musical at the beginning, Lease, is um, a spoof of this, which ends <laughs> up with them singing about the Pope having AIDS and the entire world having AIDS, and we're going to tear down the barricades and march on Washington. Um Okay. So I'd, I'd sort of seen references to it and knew some of that kind of vague background stuff that you get. Okay. Bef- before we ask Catherine about the uh, stars of the film, mm-hmm. uh, my further thing is, did you expect any of the stars of the film? No, not at all. <laughs> so I spent I spent the first sort of t- five to ten minutes, well, that first song going, oh, 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 it's them, it's them, it's them. <laughs> <laughs> Were you surprised to find out that they were from the original play, the original stage production? Yes. Yes, yeah. I, I was. Because I, I don't know. I often, I, I don't often expect that the, the stage actors to cross over into the film when there's a mm-hmm. film adaptation. Because mm-hmm. I think, I mean, 
I, I think obviously both TV and film acting and stage acting are both amazing skill sets. But I don't. There's not that many people. There's not that many people who, on mass, can cross over mm. and execute excellently in both mediums. I, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, these no. folks okay. definitely have been able to do that. I think the only one of this cast, um, no, there's two that I haven't seen on television are Adam Pascal and uh, Wilson, uh, the guy who played Angel. Everybody else yes. I have seen in movies or on a TV show. Which one was Adam Pascal? I'm sorry, I'm so rubbish with names. I uh, forget Roger. which actor is which. He was Roger. Roger. Fake Bon Jovi. Oh, yes, yes. No, I've not seen him either. Um, although I did actually get to see him perform in a, on a, in a stage show on the, the touring cast for the, the Broadway show Something Rotten. Um, mm-hmm. Adam Pascal plays Shakespeare. And okay. that show came to uh, Durham last year. And so I got to see it. And our seats were far enough back that I couldn't really see his face. But mm-hmm. I recognized his voice, and I was like, I know who that is. And so then I opened up the program and was trying to figure it out, and I was like, oh, my God, that's Roger. And I was just so happy that I got to see him perform live in something. Mm. Right. Nice. nice, nice. Okay, so uh, the the film adaptation of Rin, directed by Chris Columbus, starring Anthony Rapp, uh, Adi, what is it, Adele Dezim? Yeah, Adele Dezim, yep. <laughs> Do you remember John Travolta presenting her at the Oscars? Oh, when yes. When she did Let It Go, Adele Dezim. <laughs> um, Adina Mazel, uh, Jesse Martin, Rosario Dawson, Tay Diggs. Okay, so anti-rap, of course. Uh, Star Trek awesomeness. Now, that was the first time I've ever seen... Well, Star Trek is the first mm. time... That, well, no. I'm not going to say that's the first time I've ever, ever seen Anthony Rapp because Matthew's then about to tell me all of the other times I've seen him. It's the first Star Trek, this last Discovery, is the first time I have been aware of seeing Anthony Rapp. Okay. <laughs> I'm so bad at this. <laughs> like we, we play this game all the time. So where, where have you seen this person before, Catherine? And I never, never know. Uh, but I am now very aware of Anthony Rapp because I think he was awesome in Star Trek. And I didn't know he could sing. And clearly he can. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Idina Menzel, I, like most of the rest of the world, became aware properly of Idina Menzel with Frozen and Wicked. It Mm. was interesting to me to see her clearly having been a big deal much earlier. I had more sympathy in the past for John Travolta getting her name wrong. I now have no sympathy for John Travolta (laughs) getting her name wrong because clearly (laughs) he should have been more than aware of her existence long before that that stage muck-up. Yes. Um, Jesse Martin is Joe. He's Joe. He is the Flash's adopted dad. And quite frankly, I couldn't stop seeing him as Joe for the entire... the entire uh, film. Rosario Dawson, I don't know. I am very aware of her existence as a person um, and I thought she was amazing. I don't know what I've seen her in. Um, Have you seen Daredevil? No. Okay. I assumed you would have seen her in that. Um, She she has a role in that. She's done a lot of other things that I cannot call to my the front of my mind right now. Mm. But I think there there are just some actors that you're aware of. Yeah. Yes. She she's in that that one episode of Jessica Jones. Oh, that's right. She's the nurse from mm. that series, but I, I I suspect I'm aware of her name from reading um celebrity tittle tattle magazines when getting my hair cut as much as anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 
I don't know. I'm just aware that she exists. Um, Tay Diggs, I recognise his face. Mm-hmm. Don't know what from. Um, he was in the updated version of House on Haunted Hill, if you ever saw no. that. No. And he was the lead, well, one of the leads in the Grey's Anatomy spinoff Private Practice. Ah, uh, yes, that will be it, because I, I love Grey's Anatomy. Okay. And and I started watching Private Practice, but I felt a bit like I was cheating on Meredith with, um, with <laughs> yes, her, her, you know, with her the love of her life, sex wife. So I was just yes. like, yeah, no, I'm just going to stick with Grey's Anatomy. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> um, he he's also in a film called Equilibrium, which is pretty much as close to a guilty pleasure as I get. Like for whatever reason, I watch that and think it should not be a good film, but that's a solid action film. We should watch that at some point. I don't know that I've seen it. Both Catherine and Mandy. We should watch that. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, basically a rock-solid cast. Mm. Um, Chris Columbus, director of Home Alone, the first two Harry Potter films, <laughs> various things. If, if I'm not good at remembering the actors mm. in films I've seen, you've got absolutely no chance that I remember the director. <laughs> those are not the films you would expect from the guy who directed Rent. No. No, not at all. <laughs> Um, he was also a producer on the 2005 Fantastic Four. He produced Night at the Museum. More forgiven, though. <laughs> um, I like Night at the Museum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he directed Christmas with the Cranks, Matthew. Oh. Nope, sorry, he wrote it. Sorry, he wrote it. He was a writer, okay. not a director. Okay. Um, <laughs> having Having read the book this past year, he did not write it. <laughs> they lifted that book and put it into script format. <laughs> okay then he wrote the screenplay how about that uh Je- jesse martin i knew was a singer because he was involved in a kickstarter campaign for a production company and joss whedon gave them a lot of money through this mm, kickstarter okay. so they did a a lovely performance of him and uh cisco and eddie thorne oh, from yeah. flash mm-hmm. all singing the firefly theme oh nice which is very nice so nice. I, we, we should link that somewhere yes um, yes. th- those three sounded amazing together. Their harmony was pretty spectacular. Mm. Mm. And of course, there was the musical episode of The Flash. So we, we knew that, I love that. that he could sing from that. So, <laughs> um, Okay, have you, I think we already answered this, but have you, neither of you have seen the stage version of this, right? No. Okay. Um, what similar shows have you seen? Or are there any shows that you think are similar to this? Oh, gosh. I, I don't know. I mean, like, what? Rock? Well, okay. Have you seen Avenue Q? I have seen Avenue Q. See, Avenue Q feels like almost the follow-up to this done in a more popular style. Because okay. it loses some some of the elements that you might talk about uh, that absolutely date it. Some of the style, some of the philosophy and discussion that's going on. And Avenue Q sets it with themes that are more accessible, I think. Plus puppets, so they don't age. Right. (laughs) Um, I have not yet seen Avenue Q, but I really, really want to. Oh, you should. You'd love it. I I think you'd really... Well, I I defy anyone not to love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if it ever comes back to Durham, I will see it. It was here like four, five years ago. Right. Um, But that was before I was actually really understanding that I have the ability to go see these shows when they're in town. Mm. (laughs) So, yeah, when it comes back, I will see it. Excellent. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I, I would say uh, as uh, overall, definitely yes. I I think for me with musicals, I they, they sometimes are things that grow on me because mm-hmm. I tend to enjoy uh, a musical theatre and a musical 
more and more over time when I get more and more familiar with the songs. So it's not that I it's not that I didn't enjoy it. I did enjoy it, but because I wasn't familiar with the music, it's not like I was getting that rush of yay. It's this mm-hmm. song. I love this song. I mean, one or two of them I definitely did. You know, like so I know um, I know uh, that the breakup song "Take Take Me as I Am" is it called the Adina oh, Menzel take me song? Take me or leave me. Take me or leave me. That's it. That's it. So I know that quite a bit. I listened to that on Spotify quite a bit. Bizarrely, I I'd completely played a different narrative <laughs> as to what oh. was going on but so I'd created this whole alternate story uh, behind that song so it was very it was very interesting for me to see it layered on top of the mm. on top of what was actually going on in the film um uh-huh. so yeah and, and I am definitely going to watch it again and uh, see okay. to see if I enjoy it more I think um I think there were things that I just I am not very good with plot holes and I'm not very good with people making what I consider to be odd decisions mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think there were so there were parts of the actual story bits and some of the relationships that I was just like, what? What are you doing? Um, but as I say, I think that's because almost forty-year-old Catherine is watching it, mm-hmm. not um, slightly more idealistic um, seventeen or twenty-one or however old I was <laughs> when it came out, um, Catherine. If you if you know okay. what I mean. All right, Matthew, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I, I think I definitely agree with that. Certainly in the moment I enjoyed it, watching it, but then coming away and thinking about it, and particularly, we've said this in the past, having this more critical view on it, I have started thinking like, but they're doing this, but they're doing this, and questioning things. Mm-hmm. I, I think particularly watching it and considering its historical context, I can appreciate the value of it. And okay. seeing what it's done about changing the way uh, productions like this were presented and the, the content you could discuss in the show. Right. Because there is definitely a through line, I think, from this being successful into an Avenue Q, a Book of Mormon, a Hamilton, the the sort of modernizing of theatre. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, so without having seen the the stage performance, does this movie hold up on its own? Um, You both kind of mentioned plot holes and, and not really understanding why some things may have happened. I'm wondering if those are things that would have been answered in the stage play or in a deleted scene or, I mean, do you feel like you've missed out just by seeing the movie? I don't think so. I think it felt like a complete story. And I also think that because what it was doing was taking snapshots across a year, I don't, I, I well, and maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. But I, I think certain of the bits where I'm like, what, what's happening here? I don't know that that necessarily would have even been answered in, in, in the stage show because I think I think it's things that were in the gaps mm-hmm. between between when we were revisiting people coming in. Right. Um, I also think that so, so, sometimes it's good to allow yourself to think and think what's what's going on and, and fill it in yourself, perhaps. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I, but I, I felt that it felt like a complete work. Mm. I don't feel that I was... I don't feel that I was cheated out of anything. Ask, okay. ask me again when I see the stage show one day. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I definitely recommend that you do see the stage show. They're they're very very different, mm-hmm. and and there are so many more songs in the stage play. Um, okay. In the the stage version, there's almost no spoken dialogue. It's all sung. Um, okay. Even like okay. the, the voicemail messages, <laughs> like you know when he didn't pick up the phone because his mom called asking about the hot plate. Yeah. Speak. Yes, it's all sung in the um, the stage version. Oh, wow. Um, there, there's some spoken dialogue, but almost none. So actually, if you like listen to the soundtrack of the 
original Broadway cast and you just listen mm-hmm. to it from start to finish, you will get almost the whole show. Oh, interesting. Because I thought there were a lot of songs in the film. Yeah. Oh, it's so, so many more in the, in the show. <laughs> and I remember the first time I listened to the Broadway cast soundtrack, before I ever saw the show, I started listening to the soundtrack. And I remember thinking, wow, this is really weird. Because of all of the things that they spoke in the movie, they sang in the show. And it, it was just like, I had to readjust my expectations a little bit. Mm. Um, and so at first, I didn't really like it because I came to the movie first. Um, mm. And now I appreciate them both separately on their own merit. And I love them both. Um, right. But it took me a little while to get there mm. just because um, the stage production is different they changed a lot in the movie as far as the order of things and okay where songs go like seasons of love opened the movie but in the show it opens act two right and it's just you have to get just wrap your head around that there are changes they're not the same thing and then you can enjoy them both okay so do you think that we are missing parts of the story because we've not seen the stage production um, I think that there is one song that was completely cut out of the movie that needed to be in the movie. And I okay. forgot that it wasn't in the movie until I watched it this time because it's mm-hmm. on the soundtrack where it's supposed to be. And they filmed it. So I had seen the deleted scene. Right. And so in my brain, I'm like, oh, yeah, this all makes perfect sense. But then I was watching it and they cut directly from um, Angel's Funeral where they have that big fighting song and they all end up walking away from each other, they cut to Roger driving to Santa Fe. There's a whole yeah. musical number in between there, between Roger and um, Mark and Mimi and kind of how their relationships are working together and how Roger is actually, like, he doesn't want to watch Mimi die and that's really why he's upset. He's not really jealous of Benny. He's he's not really mad at her. He's kind of mad at the world and that's why he's leaving. And I think having that hmm. context changes what the okay. movie is I, telling I you. I think you're absolutely correct because one of the things I've got the biggest problem with is the whole uh, Roger, Mimi, Benny di- dynamic. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because I found I found the whole ben, Benny and Mimi thing at the end. I was like, this is properly sinister, and I yeah. don't really understand what he's doing. Um, like, is he is he is he grooming her? Like, what does he want? What's he doing with her? Is he helping her? Is he being sketchy? Isn't he supposed to be Mister Good with a with a with a rich wife? Mm-hmm. What's he doing with this drug using HO? You know, like what, what's yeah. he doing with this nineteen year old girl? Right. It's just like, yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, I think maybe we did miss out on something. Yeah, and, and that song ends with, um, or closely ends with Mark telling Mimi that he knows of a rehab that she can go to, and Benny says he'll pay for it for her. Please don't touch me. I understand I'm scared. I need to go away. I know a place, a clinic. A rehab? Maybe. Could you? I'll pay. Um, and so you kind of get this more of he wants to take care of her and he wants her to be healthy mm-hmm. because he, she is in this group and he is in this group and they're friends. Like you kind of get the sense that it's not romantic the way they're kind of implying it, the way the movie mm-hmm. aired. It felt way more romantic and creepy than yeah, it I, I should It have. felt totally abusive to me, especially like when he comes and stands behind her and she's yeah. crying and looking in the mirror in, in, in the back door of her club. I was just like, oh, dude, 
Yeah. Leave that poor girl alone. Yeah. Right. Um, so in the stage production, you get far less of that. And in the movie, if they hadn't cut that whole song, um, it's called Goodbye Love. So I will mm-hmm. link to it in the show notes and I'll, I'll send it to you guys so you can watch it and mm. see mm. if it helps at all. Because there's this whole thing like Mark and Roger are kind of fighting with it, too, because Mark doesn't want Roger to leave and Roger's leaving. And it just gives more depth to what the characters are actually feeling. Mm hmm. So that is the only thing that I think you missed, really, okay. from not seeing the stage play. But luckily, they filmed it, so you can still get that context from these characters. Mm. That that is interesting, though, because that that I mean, it doesn't change my perspective on the whole film, but it certainly right. changes my perspective on how I was feeling about some of the interactions towards the end of the film. Mm. And it and it was the end of that. It was that that bit onwards from Angel's death onwards that I probably felt the most disconnected from because I was a bit I was a bit too like what? Mm-hmm. What's happening now? What are you doing, dude? Okay. Yeah, and it felt completely rushed because it just jumped from okay, Roger left. Oh, by the end of the song, he's back and now Mimi's dying and he's singing a song and oh wait, everybody's happy. <laughs> It's kind of exactly. how that ending happened. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, so so Mimi's dying, she's back on drugs, she's she's dead. Suddenly, um the two people who were fighting before are carrying her in from the the park and she's dead. Oh no, she's not dead, you just had to warm her up and now she can sing. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. sorry. <laughs> um that sequence I think is done better in the stage show because it is a little bit longer and you get some more of the the singing like there are other songs that are in the stage production that aren't in the movie in the stage show um so she wakes up and she she says oh i had a vision of angel telling me to go back does that actually mm-hmm. happen in the stage show no D- does angel come on stage and tell her to no no not at that point oh, okay. um, angel comes back when they sing the finale angel mm-hmm. walks out and sings with them wearing all white um, but no, in that scene, he's not there. She's not there. Oh, okay. So I thought they would have done that much more deliberately. Mm-mm. Interesting. They still leave a bit of ambiguity there. That's that's quite interesting. Um, I, I did read a thing that there's um, a bit more ambiguity introduced or a bit more nuance introduced for Benny's character that he also pays for the funeral for Angel. Yes. That is another deleted scene that they filmed. Mm. Um, <laughs> so there's this whole thing. So in, in the the movie the way that you saw it did you guys pick up on the fact that the dog that angel essentially mm. killed was benny's dog yes yeah yes. Evita. okay yeah Evita. Evita. <laughs> so benny pays for angel's funeral and when he comes back collins is like i feel like i need to tell you that you just paid for the funeral of the man who killed your dog <laughs> and benny's like yeah i know and collins says you knew and he said yeah i hated that dog <laughs> so nice. I'm kind of glad they cut that out. <laughs> nice, nice. And I think again, I, I keep talking about watching this like I'm all, as an old person. I'm not, I'm not an old person, <laughs> but you know, as an older person, I, I was a bit worried by how much the person that I identified the most within this movie was Benny. <laughs> It's just like, and I was watching this guy. I know this is not supposed to be what I'm doing, but it was. Well, you know, I mean, that's interesting, though, because I I wonder, the movie really does work really hard to portray Benny as a villain. And so I, I was curious if you really think that he is the villain that the movie says he is. And we also had a question on Discord from Eurydice. 
And, and she asked, if you're completely new to Rent, how do you feel about Benny? Do his actions deserve the reaction from his former friends? And it sounds like you're kind of relating more to Benny, and, and so you're not feeling so negative towards him. No, and, and that's why I'm relieved that we've decided he was not some kind of sketchy um, pervert at the end of the film. <laughs> right, but, right. But no, I, I, I think my take on this is not that Benny is the villain, but that the film is very clear about the perspective from which it's telling this story. Mm. And it's telling the story from the perspective of someone within the group of struggling artists who hate the corporate America and hate the sellout. So it's, it, you know, so, so from their perspective, anyone in Benny's position is the enemy because it's the enemy of the world and the V-Bohem that they're living in. So, so I don't think it's that Benny is actually a villain. I think it is that the film is just very rooted in the perspective of people that are not not liking what he represents in his world and, mm. and just want to be left to live their boho artistic lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, I would very much agree with that. It it doesn't it doesn't want you to think anything good will come from what he's doing because it has this very heavy socialist philosophy almost that they're artists, so they should get goods and services for free because they're going to put something out into the world that's going to be worth the quality of it. Mm-hmm. And it also doesn't add it doesn't add nuance to his side of of the argument mm-hmm. that it could do about he's actually putting in a space for artists to come and work, and that there is room there for a discussion of uh, people going in trying to improve the lot of people who work there, trying to put up some sort of housing that is accessible for people who don't have much, if anything. But at the same time, they are just squatting. (laughs) But I think that's because we're allowed inside their heads Mm. and their emotions and their feelings. But because he's not of the world that the film is is around, we're not actually allowed inside his head. We don't have that visibility of what his genuine motivations are or aren't mm. i don't know he could just be a villain who knows um, yeah but 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 we, we we don't get to see that because he is not in the core of the emotions of the of the musical yeah and, we, and we're told he's from this world mm-hmm. and that he's now a sellout but we're never shown that we never get to actually see what he was like when he was there mm. and, and maybe he does have a thing of it's better to enact chain from within the system than to rebel against the system and have no heating that's an interesting point. Again, that's the sort of nuance you could have, but mm-hmm. uh, nuance is not for popular shows. <laughs> what, what do you think, Mandy? Do you think he's a villain or do you think he is someone with good intentions somewhere? Um, I feel like there's a little bit of both just because, um, I mean, I think he has good intentions. Otherwise, he wouldn't have paid for Angel's funeral. He wouldn't have paid for Mimi's rehab, even though you guys didn't see that part. He genuinely cares for these people, and he wants them not to be starving artists. And one of the lines in his song is... You'll see the beauty of a studio That lets us do our work and get paid With condos on the top Whose rent keeps open our shop To stop the protest like, he wants them to do what they want to do, mm. but he wants them to make a living doing it. And and I think I, I think there's some kind of, I don't want to say evil, but, I mean, he locks them out. Well, first he turns the heat off on them, and then he takes their stuff and locks them out of their apartment. He padlocks it on them after he tells mm. them they can stay. Um, and so I, I have a hard time reconciling Benny's character because... 
there's some conflict there, some contradiction there between his actions. Mm. And and coming from I always tend to relate more with quote unquote the main characters. And so since we are so fully immersed in the perspectives mm. of everybody else, I tend to view Benny the same way that they do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he is I mean, he's trying to do a good thing. He just may not be doing it the right way. Yeah. And and yeah, there there is potential for that discussion to happen there, but there's there's a lot going on in this. So you'd have to lose something else elsewhere and there are other places that perhaps need more nuance as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you have to give something. It's it's also difficult, I think, to fully support particularly Mark and Roger because they're just, hey, no, we should be here doing our artist thing and not paying rent. And it does start off the the way that certainly that opening song, is it just called Rent? We're yes. not going to pay? Yeah. Um, it's called Rent. <laughs> It feels like it starts off with a we can't pay because we're struggling artists. But it very much goes into we're not going to pay. We should be allowed to stay here for as long as we want to. And it's all good. And and it just feels so, particularly these days, it feels so different from the world of people struggling to be able to afford their rent, but working in an office and as a barista or in a bar or doing as many jobs as they can to cover the rent to be able to live in an area that they want to. Mm-hmm. And places like New York, San Francisco, London are incredibly expensive to live in. And people find a way to make it work. They don't just expect hey, we've got this giant loft, hey, let's stay here and you can let us live here forever. Hey, isn't that great? Because <laughs> no, no, you can't expect that. Right, right. Well, speaking of Mark and Roger, I never really thought about this before, but I, I was doing some reading about the character of Mark. And Mark is not like everybody else in this in this group. I mean, apart from Benny, we'll take Benny out because he's clearly on the outside of this group. Mm. But Mark is essentially coming from a place of privilege Mm -hmm. you know we get that voicemail from his parents and and we kind of something that he says kind of leads you to believe that they live in like suburbia and you know they're they're the man that he's trying to stick it to you know and so how does that make you feel whenever you see you know like angel who is you know, playing drums on the side of the street for money and, you know, Collins, Mimi, who is a struggling and, yeah. university pr- professor, trying to do work and trying to do something that he believes in. And then you've got Mark, who is choosing to live this way when he could probably do something about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's not a, an an uncommon theme or an uncommon mm-hmm. characterization you know it's like i don't know if um have you are you aware of the band pulp i am Probably not. not it's a very british band <laughs> they um they did a song in not a dissimilar time actually i remember listening it to it when it's i was studying like 90s, for my a levels yeah, yeah. so yeah. that would have been 96 um a song called common people and it talks about a rich girl who goes to arts college and hangs out with the common people um, and it's got a line in it, but if you called your dad, he could stop it all. Mm. And it's like, I think that sort of, yes, that 
that that starving artist with a comfortable safety net you know that it's it's a, it's an experience of one's youth to go and live this edgy lifestyle and okay. kind of probably you know I, I think mark's future is that he carries on um and gets another well-paid job and he probably gets it out of his system and uh, that, that you know this, mm-hmm. this is me, me being a bit cynical perhaps but <laughs> you know mark mark nowadays is probably good mates with benny and he has a nice right. wife and goes and, you know, two kids and lives a house, house on the Hamptons. I yeah. don't know. Oh, remember that time we had no heating, but we were happier then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it, it is, like you said in the beginning, that uh, faux-boho pretension. Yeah. Uh, and they do, they reference people like Sondheim and Dylan who went and lived in these places with Joan Baez and Ginsburg and so on. And, and and had to struggle and make their art, but eventually became why hugely successful. Mm, right. And it's it's trying to live that same dream, but very much at a time when everything was changing, when Manhattan was gentrifying, when New York was dramatically cleaning up the act that it the the appearance that it had from a film like Taxi Driver, going into actually this very sophisticated town with the Broadway shows, with the uh, great neighborhoods. Mm. But I also think that Mark, again, looking at this cynically, Mark is perhaps a vehicle that allowed the show to mm-hmm. directly appeal to the theatre-going audience because he is potentially a, a character that people who had money to go and buy theatre tickets could could put themselves in the shoes of a little bit more comfortably. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Because, mm. yeah. I, I yeah completely agree. I think it is important for the show to gain success and traction and be able to deliver its message. That the person in front of it, the narrator, arguably the main character, mm-hmm. maybe possibly, um, but is a white man. It's him who has the mix up over saying he or she with angel and has to correct himself and, and has a learning experience through this. And, and he's the one who's called out directly by the homeless person. You know, you're mm-hmm. here filming me, but what are you actually doing about it? Mm. And and questions, you are what you own and so on. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's important for it to be able to be, like you say, Catherine, a- accepted and accessible yeah. to also, a wider so audience. It perhaps was important. Hopefully less so nowadays. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Don't know. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 I just wonder. That, that's my cynical cynical side wondering no, I'd agree as well I don't know if it was deliberate or if it or perhaps was was that um, Larson Larson's mm. almost self-insertion into the material absolutely yeah because he has largely the same background he was a straight man he did not have AIDS or HIV that's not what he died from mm-hmm. it, it, he is very much Mark in this situation or Mark is him maybe mm. But I didn't dislike Mark. I just didn't. I didn't have any strong feelings about Mark. I was quite neutral on him. It doesn't hurt that Anthony Rapp is quite charming. I love Anthony. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the first time I saw this, Mark was my favorite character because he was the one I could relate to the most. Um, coming from my very sheltered, yeah. <laughs> white kind of religious background, Mark was the closest character in this group of people who looked like me. And, mm-hmm. and so I was able to kind of follow what was happening through his perspective, which mm-hmm. I think was really helpful for me to get to where I am now, um, because now I love them all and I, I can see each of their perspectives in a different way mm-hmm. now. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. He's he's a little bit the audience surrogate. Mm. Mm. 
And and in that same vein, Maureen would be the uh, the audience surrogate for people who want to be able to talk about understanding the lifestyle, because she also seems to uh, not be doing so badly or, or have that safety net as well. And, and she almost reminds me of some of the characters in um, American Psycho, where they're talking about all oh, the troubles in Sri Lanka and, oh, I saw this homeless person, oh, it's so terrible. So they want to go out into the world and understand these things, but not be part of them. And I get some of the same vibe from Maureen. I think Maureen's a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> Maureen's the sort of person you invite to a party because she's fun and she livens the room up, but you do not trust her. You do not want to in your close friendship group. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think Maureen is probably my least favorite character of the whole group, mm. just because she's so dishonest. Like, mm. She shows you one thing and then five minutes later shows you something else. Benny at least is consistent. Yeah. Maureen is mm-hmm. not. Um, yeah. And so, like Very you said, you can't trust her. Yeah. Calculating, selfish, narcissistic sociopath. One does not want to date someone like Maureen. End of story. <laughs> Unless you're Joanne. <laughs> Unless you're Joanne. Well. Poor Joanne. <laughs> Yeah, she's she's the sort of person that breaks your heart and then scars you for the next five years. Mm. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But fascinating to watch. I mean, I love Adina Menzel. I, I, I love those songs. I love her I love Maureen's songs. She's she she is a real sparkling personality. Mm-hmm. In, in a sort of cold hard diamond mm. type way. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? She I think there was a real yeah. I, I can see why she's centre of attention every time she's in the room. Mm. I can see the character up on the stage performing and getting everyone's attention in that way. But yeah, she's not a she's not a soft, caring, giving type. There is yeah. not an awful lot of. I don't see that there's an awful lot of caring in her. I don't know. There, there is a way of telling the story that makes her the villain of the piece. That she's damaged Mark as much as he seems to be damaged, that she is damaging Joanne and that she is something of a tourist to this world, seeming to be. I think there is a way of telling it that actually makes her come across as badly as you've taken her, Mm -hmm. Catherine. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, I've probably reacted to her more than than was necessary. (laughs) And and I I felt like the the film was setting us up for that by the way it introduced her, certainly when she comes in, but she's referenced by everyone. And you see her dancing, but you don't really see her. It takes such a long time for her to be introduced that mm-hmm. she has this mythos around her, which is what you would do for a villain. Mm. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way. You're absolutely right. And and the way, even the way that she comes in on the motorcycle with the helmet on mm. and you still don't see her mm. until she is fully on display in front of the crowd. Yeah. And, and gives her beat poem, jumped over the moon thing. <laughs> yeah, that was not the sort of protest I was expecting, and she was not the character I was expecting. Because mm. I, I didn't know that Maureen was Edina Menzel at that point. I right. was expecting someone older, I was expecting someone dowdier, and I was expecting oh. the, the protest to be directly related to the issues that mm. were being protested about, not some, some slightly weird thing about cows jumping over the moon and mooing. <laughs> We drink Diet Coke in, in Cyberworld. Cyberland. Cyberland. <laughs> and the bulldog's name is Benny. I mean, so really... Or subtle. Was, yeah. It, I mean, it was, it was performance art designed to 
specifically protest Benny and not anything else, mm. which I thought was interesting. But yeah. coming f- coming from the perspective that that Maureen is a sociopath and she's narcissistic, that makes perfect sense. I was also I didn't understand why Benny was so worried about her protest. I like so, like why why was he so why was he worried enough to be like yeah you can stay on for free if you just stop this protest and I was just like that protest isn't going to have any impact on your um, development mm-hmm. dude <laughs> she's just telling a story about a cow <laughs> you know? is it supposed to lead to something longer yeah, more squatters maybe. or yeah uh, I don't know yeah I think um, his investors were worried about. Because one of the lines in, in, in one of their early songs, Roger said, you can't just wipe out an entire tent city and then watch It's a Wonderful Life on TV. And so mm. I think they didn't want – they were worried that her protest might actually gain traction and they didn't want bad publicity because they were forcing the homeless out of this area. Hmm. And I think that, that I think that's why I was expecting her protest to be more on point around the social issues. Right. And actually, I felt that her protest was more about her showing off than actually protesting by the end of it. Right. Yeah. But then I, I am obviously viewing Maureen with very critical eyes, perhaps. Don't know. I felt the same. So, and we did watch this separately. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, did either of you actually moo with her? I did not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I will admit, the first time I watched it, I did not, but I have mood with her since then. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a comment from this Aisha on Twitter who said it was, uh, she can see, uh, talking about this as a, a big change in the way theatre was done and that audiences weren't used to being asked to move with someone. Mm-hmm. So actually that would have been quite fun in the mid-90s as this is taking off and saying, uh, presumably she stops the show at that point until people join in. Oh. That's interesting. I don't know. I mean, because every time I've seen the show, um, I mean, it's been in the last five years when this has already been cult status and so well mm. known. So everybody in the audience just automatically moves. But yeah. 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 And if I went to see it live, I would totally move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, again, you can draw a line from that to Avenue Q where there's audience participation. And they ask you for money and actually pass a hat down. (laughs) And I've put money in the hat because I'm fairly sure it all just goes to charity at the end of it. So, (laughs) Right. Okay. But but that is part of the show with them raising money for something. So, Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we had a couple people ask um, questions around how it portrayed or treated the AIDS epidemic. Um, We had Sarah L. She said, I'm wondering if it feels dated now in terms of both the AIDS movement and the particular gentrification movement. One fight largely won, the other lost. It was a powerful show, but I wonder if the issues make sense now. And then um, our friend, the Kate, do you feel more knowledgeable about the AIDS crisis in 1980? Or I guess this was 1989. I I think um, that the portrayal of the AIDS crisis matches other portrayals I've seen of the AIDS crisis on TV. Because mm. for, for me, you know, like I was born in 1978. So so for me, the AIDS crisis at that moment or at that point in history was something that we, we learned about in secondary school. We talked about it in social issues classes. We, we, we saw TV news articles on it. But, but growing up in semi-rural England, it, it was not something that touched my mm. life at that point. Um, mm-hmm. So 
so, so I don't know that I feel more knowledgeable about the AIDS crisis. I think it reinforces the knowledge that I have, which, which to be to, to be on open disclosure is is not extensive. It is what mm. I was taught in school at the time. Right. Um, I do think that because it's so very specific on the social issue that it's raising in, in relation to the AIDS crisis, because I think that 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 has moved on a lot now. I, I think Sarah's point around does that does that feel dated. I think um, I think it does, mm. but that's not necessarily a criticism because it is designed. It is a show designed to snapshot a particular moment in time, but it does very much right. link it to that time, which might mean that it would connect less well with a a, a modern day audience or a day you know today audience. Like you know, if they were reviving it, I would be interested to see. Let, let's say if they, you know if they would do a remix and a new revival coming to London, I would be very interested to see them refresh the show to try and bring in something that is a real crisis issue today. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if that's even possible, but but that that would be interesting. In terms of gentrification, I, I think I think that's an ongoing issue, just possibly not in exactly the same way, the same blocks. I mean, it's something that we see in in London a lot. Mm-hmm. Because you know that housing in central London is in huge demand constantly, and and sort of even even you know even today you're seeing you're seeing the price the price bubble area of the London housing market get further and further out, um, and and more and more communities seeing that. Um, People that have grown up in those communities can no longer afford, or even dream of affording, to buy a, pop- a property mm. in that community. I mean, I know that's a different gentrification. I guess it's not sort of getting rid of a tent city, but, but yeah, I think that's an ongoing challenge for a lot of communities. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, both both of those issues you, you mentioned about the social issues and the way it addresses them with the gentrification and the change to a tent city. Both of them, it's not addressing the social issues. It is normalizing them and discussing them in some ways in the mm-hmm. same way it does with um uh, race and gender and sexual orientation this film yes. is not going oh, it's a man dressed up as a woman that's shocking and new and let's discuss it it's just normal and and we call her she and that's that's fine mm. uh, and that's a good way to to absolutely to normalize it to have it accepted by uh, the the wider culture and the wider society it does a bit the same for people with HIV. There were there were films like Philadelphia and other things on TV that were portraying this and going into deep things about how you should deal with someone who has HIV. How can you contract it and so on. This is not doing that discussion, but it's doing here's what they're going through. Here's uh, them not wanting to lose their dignity. Mm-hmm. And and I think the sheer number, the sheer you know the sheer proportion of characters in the show mm. that had HIV. That that's what that's what I took away from this. I was like, oh my goodness, that's that's a big big part of yeah. this community, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that, that the impact that that brought to their life. It's not that they all had this one friend mm-hmm. that was struggling. It was there were a lot of them. Mm-hmm. That that yeah. that I found quite impactful. Mm, absolutely, and and arguably the the biggest discussion it has is the discussion between Mimi and Roger over uh, dealing with it. Because there is an element that at this point it was almost a death sentence. There were things you could do to try and delay it, but at some point it was likely to kill you. And and the discussion between them, I think it's another day, about Mm -hmm. she just wants to live her life. No regrets. Let's just have as much fun as you can whilst you're here on Earth. 
and he wants to actually try and take care and be good and extend it as much as possible. But that means potentially uh, not living in, in the same vein as her. Mm-hmm. That's probably the closest it comes to, I think, a debate about any of the social issues. Yeah, I think you're right. All right. Well, before we start getting into our favorite bits, we do have some kind of fun questions from some of our listeners that I want to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, so our friend Abby at this A.E. Shaw, she said, I would love to know how you enjoy the songs in the film compared with the stage, which you guys can't answer, but I can. And is there any particular one that you think stands out as significantly better in the film? And I, I kind of touched on this already. I like the songs in the, the movie better, but that's just because I heard them first. Um, and I also significantly prefer the voices of Rosario Dawson and Tracy Toms to the women who played Mimi and Joanne in the original cast. And that's just a personal preference, I think. Um, and that's why I think, uh, like, Take Me or Leave Me is so fantastic in the movie. And it's not quite as powerful to me in the stage version. I wonder which one I've been listening to. I might have to investigate. Yeah, I would be curious. Hmm. Curious to know. Well, to be honest, though, I didn't even realise it was two people. <laughs> I just thought it, I just thought it was all Idina Menzel. So nope. I'm definitely I, going I, to investigate. Yeah, I suspect it's the film version because they do sound fairly similar. Not as much yeah, as Mark and do. Roger. Like, yeah. if Mark and Roger are singing together, they just sound like Anthony Rapp to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's interesting. All right. Um, our friend, the Kate at I Do Human Things, she had a couple questions. First... Be honest, Angel in drag, prettier than anyone you've ever met. I liked Angel as a character. Angel was probably one of my favourite characters. Mm, nice. I, I thought there was a real genuineness to Angel, and an Angel in whatever she was wearing, whenever she was wearing it, was awesome. Mm-hmm. I agree, and and I think beautiful woman, and also beautiful when not wearing the wig. Mm. Um, just, I loved it. Yeah, I, I actually liked it when uh, she was almost downplayed during La Vie Bohème. Mm-hmm. I think it's basically mm-hmm. like a sweater skirt combo. And it just right. works. It's just ordinary. It's not over the top. It's not doing, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race yeah. <laughs> the type end of the spectrum. It's just, this is her. And, and again, it's normalizing and accepting. What were your thoughts of Angel when she was officially properly introduced to us with the song Today For You? When she comes in, kind of wearing the the Santa dress, is that the Akita wrap? Platforms. No, that, I think that's after yeah. the Akita wrap. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's what, yeah, when, the when she's a Santa. Um, I just thought she was fun. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it's terrific. I I think it helps that that is an excellent song. That is a good it, introduction yes. for the character. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, Kate also asked, at which point did tears well in your eyes, or did they? they? didn't no. they didn't i mean i think there were definite points with uh, which had an emotional reaction in me and 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 that was mainly around angel and angel's death right. it did have mm-hmm. you know I, it did have an emotional reaction it, it did not make me cry okay matthew do you ever cry when you watch movies uh this did not no okay it, it didn't right. do anything like um rain will make the flowers grow that's a sad moment in a musical so <laughs> <laughs> okay um, the first time I watched this movie, I started crying um, during the Will I Lose My Dignity song. Will I lose my dignity? Will someone care? Will I 
that's, that's because, a very emotional moment as well. It is. Mm. A, it's yeah. a very emotional moment, and it's not something I'd ever really thought about. And and that's such a universal feeling for anybody who's facing death. Mm. Yeah. And and it just it it kind of broke me a little bit in a way that I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I always cry at Angel's death, even when I see the stage play now. Like I cry when Angel dies. The last really kind of fun question comes from Jazzy at Jazzbot7. And she asks, did 525,600 minutes get stuck in your heads immediately? And how many times did you have to calculate the number because it was annoying that the song was in your head, but you couldn't remember the correct digits? I still can't remember the correct digits. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I... Okay. Yeah, that, that, that... That first bit is definitely a an earworm, I yes. think, and, and and I think it will I think it will continue to be something that I hum every now and then at random moments for yeah. no apparent reason. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm never going to get the digits right. Yeah, it's funny though because the way they wrote the song, you could almost fill in any number there, and it's still going to work. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have to be five hundred twenty five thousand six hundred minutes. It can be four hundred and twenty minutes and sixty. 500 minutes, I don't know, you know, something, it just, the, mm. you know what I'm trying to say. You, yeah. you just can't put a seven in there, because it's got two Correct. syllables. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I studied psychology, I did a whole thing of word interpretation, mm-hmm. and, and it was using words and numbers. We had to take seven out, because it was too many syllables compared to every other number. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Random okay. things. Watching it, it is a good opening in general, giving you the, the, the feeling of the seasons of love and, and how it's going to work through a, a year but rent is a much better opening rent really felt like the the same sort of thing as you get with um down on skid row in little shop of horrors it's this yes. the ensemble's there and they're doing their thing and and we sort of set a bit of motivation going as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i i i you saying that seasons of love is not actually the opening of the stage play yeah i can completely see it Yeah, um, I started watching the director's commentary on this and Chris Columbus opened it with this song because one, it's a song that most people are fairly familiar with and he wanted to bring the audience in immediately with something familiar. Um, And then Adam Pascal also mentioned that this was the only song in the whole show that doesn't contribute to the actual narrative of the story and Mm. so it could be moved. And so whether it came at the beginning or at the beginning of the second act it still worked um and i i don't know that it set the tone for the film right Mm. at the start of the at the start of the film if i'm honest Mm -hmm. i mean i think later on in the film when you've got some of the love and and the found family aspects and and you've seen the relationships develop and and the importance of love to get you through the hard times in your life it Mm -hmm. makes sense but I, I agree with Matthew. I think Rent sets the tone of conflict mm. and struggle that we start the film with more. Right. As well as being more upbeat. Mm. Mm. Just just yeah, injecting it, energy right from the start. Yeah. Mm. It, it, it is a little jarring to go directly from Seasons of Love to Rent. Because yeah, it's like just... love, love, anger. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, 
basically everybody who reached out to us about this movie wants to know what our favorite song was. So did, did you guys have a favorite song from the movie? Lovey Boy. Lovey Boy. Um, I, I think as as a as a as a visual visual piece as there's a joy about the song Lovey Boy. Um, it saddens me that it's not something I'm going to be able to bash out on the piano and sing along to myself. Um, but but as a as a sort of a, as a, as a spectacle as, as something to view as a, as an audience for me, Lovey Lovey Boy was probably my favourite song. In, yeah, in as an ensemble film. piece, it's excellent. Yes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost a shame it's interrupted in the middle with the piece between Roger and Mimi. And then it goes back right. into La Vie Boheme and then you get the conclusion because mm-hmm. you couldn't have it as one whole song then. Yes. But it would be right. great to have, like, that's the one song to come out with. Mm. I think probably, yeah, same for me. I, I, Tango Maureen stood out as being a, a, an exceptional piece. I like a lot of the little jokes going on in there. Where, like we say, with her doing her testing one, two, three, and the back and forth about it being weird. Um, but then I just love the, they both know how to tango, so they tangle together, and they talk about how they know how to do it. Then he has to do it backwards, and he comments on it, mm. and she points out to him, well, the backwards and in heels gag. You should try it in heels. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then it does that introduction of Maureen, and the eyebrow lift as they take off their jackets. It, it's doing a lot of, uh, quite a bit of heavy lifting for what we're going to see. As right. well as bonding, uh, giving a chance to bond for these two characters who arguably wouldn't bond anyway. Mm-hmm. If you just introduce them as, as she's the new girlfriend and possibly the person Maureen cheated on him with, mm-hmm. it, it would be a bit difficult to bond them later. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, Matthew, being such a fan of cinematography that you are, did you notice that during the fantasy aspect of Tango Maureen, it was largely one cut, like one shot? I didn't. I can believe it. Hmm. I didn't notice if they do any swooping in, so any any cuts behind someone's back or something. I think there was like one quick cut at the beginning and and then another at the end, but the mm. the large middle section was primarily one cut with one guy with the camera like kind of swooping around the characters okay. to reveal faces and stuff. Mm. I didn't notice that they were talking about it on the commentary, and so that's nice. <laughs> you know, I don't notice those things. This is the problem with me watching it on an iPad in a hotel room in Manchester. Mm. Yes, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, something for us to look out for when we watch it again. Yeah. Uh, that's a hard question for me to answer, honestly, because at various times, every single song has been my favorite song. When I first started listening to the soundtrack on repeat, I went back and forth between La Vie Boheme and What You Own as my favorite songs. Mm-hmm. Now, I specifically love um, Goodbye Love. There's one line in that song that just gets me every time. I'd be happy to die for a taste of what angel That line has always been a punch in the gut to me, or mm-hmm. I guess a punch in the heart to me. And so I always, always, like, I have listened to that song on repeat just because of that line. Mm. So basically all of the songs are my favorite. Mm-hmm. I'm going to cheat. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Your show, you get to cheat as much as you like. <laughs> And Kate also wanted to know what we thought the worst song was. And, you know, she did say everybody knows what the worst song is. And so I did clarify I with her that we were on the same page. So I want to know what you guys think. I I don't think any of them stood out to me as the worst song. But then there were songs that didn't stand out to me. So maybe it was one of those. Yeah. There's a number in there that are 
less impressive, shall we say, but nothing that I'd go, oh, that was a bad song. Okay. So which one is it? <laughs> Roger song to Mimi at the end. Which one's that? My eyes or your eyes. See, it didn't stand out to you. Well, there, there you go. I, I've already erased it from my memory, so I agree. Yeah, it, it was just, it was so disappointing because, I mean, part of the point of this movie from Mark's perspective and Roger's perspective is that they have spent an entire year working on their perspective things. Mark has spent a year on his movie and Roger has spent a year trying to get the perfect song down. And then he sings it and it's just so disappointing. It's a bit lame. <laughs> yes, absolutely. What else did you love about Rent? I mean, we've kind of already talked about all of it, but is there anything that you want to specifically call attention to? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I, I liked, um, I, I really enjoyed Angel's stuff about the dog at the start. Yeah. And, and I think, um, oh, what, what, what was the dog's name? Evita. Yes, Diakita, that, that, Evita. that. I, like, like, seriously, more of an earworm for me than, than whatever number of minutes it is in a year. Is, <laughs> um, <laughs> minutes. <laughs> yeah, is, I've just been going, Evita, Akita. <laughs> that, that's somehow really called to me. And, and I, I, as much as I disliked the nature of the character that she played, I, I find Didiza Menzel mesmerising. Mm. And so I, I loved her performance, even if I didn't like the character. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, yeah. That's, it means it's a good performance, yeah. especially. Yeah, I, I'm gonna. I, it's gonna be interesting to me to because I've been listening to "Take Me or Leave Me" for at least the last six months on Spotify because I've been toying with it as is this a song I want to work on with my music teacher, perhaps to perform at our, our next showcase. And, and the answer to that is no because I do not have Idina Menzel's lungs. Um, <laughs> that song would kill me. Um, but you know, but I've been listening to the song quite a bit because I enjoy mm. it. But I have had a completely different narrative, so it's going to be very interesting for me now when this comes up on my Catherine's song playlist on spotify to 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 think do do i now start playing the story as it is in the in the film or do i carry on with my with my own personal narrative of this being a film star who just gets cat called a lot and she's got an unreasonably jealous boyfriend <laughs> which is the, uh, the the very different story that i'd put up put to that song who also make li- right, right. makes list and asleep <laughs> yeah, I don't know. She's 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 a, she's a mixed up character in my world. <laughs> nice. It, watching it, I, I was surprised because I was like, "Oh, Adina Menzel obviously clearly works up to that, you know, holding a note and and lung busting songs." Because I I didn't feel like that's how she sounded watching it. And then listening to the soundtrack yesterday, it's like, "Oh, they turned her vocals down." Yeah, no, she does do that because <laughs> on the soundtrack, she probably goes through it a few times. And yeah. there are not many people who can do what she does, so... Not, not without injuring themselves. Well, no, yeah. <laughs> and, and Tracy Toms is a perfect counterpart to her in Agreed. that song, because mm. Tracy yeah, Toms yeah, yeah. can hit those notes too. Yeah, yeah she was um, great. Just listening to her do those, those riffs in Seasons of Love...
And then again, when they did the reprise of it at Angel's funeral, she just hits those high notes so beautifully. Hmm. Yes, definitely. Mandy, what are some of your favorite bits? Um, The whole movie. <laughs> that that is cheating and that's cheating too much even for you. <laughs> okay. Uh well I think we've we've talked about all of the ones that I actually specifically wrote down except for one. So there is a line in Benny's song at the beginning when when he's singing to Roger and Mark about what's coming. The song is called You'll See. He has a line. And the first time I heard that, you child, I was like, (laughs) yes, I am a child. The first time I heard that and like really kind of it registered what the words were. I was like, that's not what he said, because they, they they did it so straight. Like, there was no hint of a joke or a smile. And so I went and looked up the lyrics and then I watched it again. I was like, that's really what he's saying. And it just makes me happy. That's why I love it. It makes me happy. Because we use that phrase here. Like I, 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 I have on many, many occasions <laughs> in my life say, now don't poo-poo this before you, mm. um, before you listen to what I've got to say. That, that is just a normal phrase for me. <laughs> I'm sure it's normal for, for many people. Um, it just isn't for me. And, and so it makes me happy and I like it. Okay? Excellent. Excellent. Well, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, everything else, I just, I love it. Um, I wish that some of the stuff, um, like the song Goodbye Love, I wish uh, that had been in the movie. Um, And so I'm really looking forward to you guys watching that deleted scene. But I feel like I can't say that's one of my favorite things since it wasn't actually in Mm -hmm. the version of the movie that was released. What about you, Matthew? Um, There's one thing just to to mention on that we've not covered so far. The, The one of the reasons why I think Rent works as an opening is the final line of it. They're, they're talking about uh, all these things, uh, how important Rent is, and it finishes with the line, everything is Rent. And at that mm-hmm. point, I think they're talking about uh, sundered in two. Things yes. are split when you, you oh, know, when yes. you, something is Rent. Uh, and that, for me, absolutely sets up the theme for this film. I mean, even the mm-hmm. poster for the, for the film and for the stage show is all the couples together. Benny and Mark are considered a couple in this instance because they're, <laughs> but they're two characters who play off against each other a lot in it, right? And the film is about all these couples being rent and being split apart, and you have uh, Joanna and Maureen who can't get on because of their differences, differences that might make them work in in later years. At this point in their lives, are they're too too much of a, a difference? Roger and Mimi just have a. a complete dichotomy of view on on how they should be living their lives and what they should be getting out of it. And and then you've got Collins and Angel who are an amazing relationship and work so well together and they are rent because of the death and Mm -hmm. because of the illness they both Mm -hmm. suffer from. So just as that's the closing line of the opening song and I think it works wonderfully to set up what you're about to go through. And the the found family you talked about being rent apart and this whole district being rent. It's it's a wonderful way to put it through, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love the the word play around the word rent throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the most blatant where they're not actually talking about money. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the song, What You Own, they, there's a line that's, I don't own emotion, I rent. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that most people would say, but it makes complete sense in that context. And, and so I just, I liked the way that thread was woven through all of it. Mm. 
So is there anything else we need to talk about rent before we wrap up? Two things. First, I forgot to ask, were you guys surprised to see Sarah Silverman show up on your screen when you were watching this? I didn't recognise that's who it was. I was just like, oh, I know she's famous. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know she was going to be in it, but having watched her comedy from this time and thoroughly enjoying it, but she is edgy for the sake of being edgy. No, I'm not surprised she's in this. This is Philly in her milieu. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She was good. Mm. (laughs) Um, And and the last thing that I really want to talk about is, are you guys familiar with how some of the U.S. networks have started doing live televised productions of stage musicals over the last couple of years? Like they've done Grease and The Sound of Music. I'm Um, not. Uh, It doesn't surprise me. We've had a couple on over here. I think UK productions as well as the US ones. And and in fact, wasn't the Rocky Horror that was done live as well, I think. Yeah, we're doing. I think the UK's got something not dissimilar going on at the moment, but it's more around the National Theatre and them doing special cinema showings live of certain yes. National Theatre productions. Mm. So it's not a TV thing, well, you, but it is a cinema. You thing. think about what they did with Peter Pan Goes Wrong. Mm. It's exactly that sort of thing. Okay. It's it's a production done in combination to be okay. broadcast. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, so they are, uh, Fox is doing Rent as its next, uh, well, I guess it's not the next one because they're doing Christmas Story and then they're going to do this one. Okay. So this will air on January 27th of next year. And I'm really, really excited about it, but that scares me because they haven't done a good job on any of the live musicals. <laughs> um, none of the networks that have done them have done good jobs. Right. And that terrifies me, but I love Rent so much that I'm going to have to watch it. I think it's a challenge to film a stage mm. show in a way that in a way that brings it home to a to an at home audience in mm-hmm. as well as as well as you would get in the theatre because mm. there's just something there's something magical about being in the theatre and I think you know yeah. good good adaptations embrace the media in which they're being done yeah mm-hmm. so so just filming a live musical is probably going to be a very a bit is, is a challenge. Mm. I'd yeah, I'm curious how they're going to do it um, because the stage production of Rent is very minimalistic. Right. It's literally three steel tables on the stage and a few other props. And that's basically what they work around the whole time. Mm. Um, and so I'm curious what they're going to do with it. But I'm Yeah, because if they're going to want to hold not people's hopeful. attention, they'll have to yeah. – I, I think they'll have to up that. And I think this is one of the reasons I get so involved in a film in the cinema – is I'm giving it all my attention. Mm. Uh, like mm-hmm. with the best will in the world, when I'm watching something on telly at home, it's got 75% of my attention at best. You know, the other 25% is definitely fiddling around with some knitting, some crochet, sometimes playing on my phone, which is the bad thing because <laughs> then 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 suddenly I realise I've lost a whole two minutes or something and had to rewind as I've as I've got sucked right. into a, a sort of a, a wormhole on Facebook or something. Mm-hmm. But interesting yeah you'll have to flag it up to matthew when we get nearer the time because i'd mm. be interested in seeing if we can access that over here as well if there was a revival on the west end would you want to see it yes okay yes i think um yeah i didn't like i didn't love into the woods when it was on when we saw it on film mm. um, but i was still interested enough for us to go see it um when it came to to the menier mm. and it was interesting to see the production staged in a different way yeah so and, yeah, no, I'd see it. Yeah, you can completely accept that the baker's wife, who is desperate to have a baby, is completely pregnant on stage in front of you. 
because you just make believe in the theatre. It's fine. Yes, that was <laughs> She actually came out at the beginning of the production and said, okay, guys, I'm going to need you to act along with me here. Yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> she must have been seven months pregnant she at least. She was properly yeah. pregnant. I was very impressed wow. that she was still able to, mm. to sort of maintain her composure through a full stage show. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> okay. Uh, and that, I think, would sweeten the pot and we'd definitely go, if the Many A Chocolate Factory... Put on a production of Rent. Yeah, that would be amazing. You'd be there in a second, wouldn't you? Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's our favourite theatre in London. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Very like, small. I'm sure that means something. Very small theatre, but they never do a bad production. And a lot of their stuff then goes on to be like transferred into a bigger theatre in, 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 the, in the West End. Mm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely, if you're spending any time in London, check out what's on at the menu. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Well, if you would like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Catherine, thank you very much for joining us. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you uh, for having me. Where can people find your podcast on the internet? <laughs> Same place as they find yours. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, am I supposed to say something? No, No, that was perfect. (laughs) We are 100% funded by listeners like you through Patreon. So anything you can give gives access to exclusive content whilst also helping to support the network and develop new shows. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash eloquentgushing and visit the homepage eloquentgushing.com to subscribe to the weekly newsletter and find our other shows, such as Across the Arrowverse, where we discuss the DC TV shows. Yay! <laughs> and to hear more of that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Galaxy Quest with Dr. Kelly Jones. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And how do you measure a year? In an unquantified number of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> In <laughs> minutes. <laughs> Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.